Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. Good afternoon, Joel. Howdy. How are you, Eric? I am well. I'm warm. It's finally warm here in Georgia. It's like 70 degrees today. Are your ears still ringing from our test setup? <laughs> no, what test setup? There's no test setup. No, everything runs perfectly, always. Oh, I don't man. know what you're referring to. Right. <laughs> it is Certainly interesting not. as a 50-year-old who loves technology to work on these technological things each week and to realize that no matter how hard you set things up, every week is a new experience. Amen. As I, as is also the case uh, when I lead worship on Zoom every week. And that points us toward our topic this week. We thought y'all as listeners uh, and friends of ours might be interested in what it's like to do virtual worship. For some churches, they've been doing in-person and offering an online or virtual option for a long time, but the pandemic forced it on almost every worshiping community out there. And they made a lot of fast choices in an attempt to still be a worshiping community despite the pandemic. So today, uh, the rabbi and I are going to chat about what virtual worship feels like and our reflections on how it is worshipful or not, how it builds community or not, and what, what we hope for the future of worshiping communities. Yeah, well, it's certainly changed. And I think the way we've done worship has changed in, in all religions. One thing from a Jewish law perspective, and we may have discussed this last week, so listeners may remember, or may, it was said, we definitely discussed it, I don't remember how recently, but that according to Jewish law, Judaism requires what's called a minion, a gathered community of at least 10 Jewish men in traditional Judaism, Jewish adults for us, meaning people over the age of 13 who've had their bar or bat mitzvah. Uh, and when we are gathered over Zoom, we are not together physically. And so there are these interesting Questions. It's not quite theological questions. We call them halakhic questions, meaning related to what one is allowed to do. So am I allowed to chant from an actual Torah scroll if I'm in the sanctuary and I am by myself, but on Zoom, you know, there might be 20, 30, 40 people. Um, in some ways, that's an easy decision for my community to make as a Reformed congregation. That may not be surprising to you by now. Um, but And the answer is yes. Um, but in more traditional communities, they, it, it's been a struggle and they've had to get kind of special dispensation from the community rabbi to be allowed to do those things. And one thing uh, of note um, from kind of a sociological standpoint is this is one of the reasons that very, uh, I don't want to say religious, but traditionally minded, what I would call the right wing of Orthodox Judaism. And I don't, I don't mean that Democratic Republican, although they many may happen to fit that section. Um, but they have a, a, an abnormally high percentage of positive COVID cases because they are gathering together because that is what Jewish law says. And so that, that's kind of one thing right there. 
You know, I, I, I'm an extrovert. I, I, I like people. I like being around people. I think Judaism um, understands that there's a power and a warmth and a beauty in people being gathered together, whether it's for prayer, that's daily prayer or Shabbat prayer or a special holiday or a funeral. Um, and so something is missing um, through Zoom. And at the same time, I think some things are gained too, but uh, I, I'll, I can get to that in a little bit. What, what, what do you have for as we get into this? And of the options that are out there that uh, worshiping communities have to choose from, it sounds like you typically go with Zoom. So it is a live performance, not a pre-recorded thing, but people are connected to it virtually. Uh, how was that decision made for y'all's community? And, and why did you choose that one as opposed to some of the other options that other worshiping communities chose? Yeah. And so I'll answer the second part first. I would say 90 to 95% of our services are like that in that it's live. On a typical Friday night, I, like I mentioned before in my example, I am in the sanctuary by myself and I run the service. I have, uh, I created a, a keynote PowerPoint presentation with all the prayers. So that's as if it's the, the prayer book, the C-Door. Um, but when our choir sings, for example, some of those things are recorded, especially when we do the occasional kind of montage where different voices going in and out. Um, but for the most part, it is live, just as one would get in a service. Um, the decision was made, um, you know, I certainly with regard to running services, mostly by me, because I'm the person who does it. You know, we don't have a technology person. We don't have a paid person that other big places may have. Um, certainly in discussions with, you know, our board and leaders of the congregation, uh, Zoom, is, specifically the platform of Zoom, is something that the reform movement uses for its meetings and seminars. And so it wasn't something that I was too dis, um, dis unfamiliar with. Uh, so that kind of got it started. But even now, 11 months, there are still tweaks and things I'm doing differently, depending on circumstance and here and there and things like that. What are you using? For us, it was a yeah, it was a really different decision. We instantly went to pre-recorded, uh, so it was you know for week one, it was just an iPhone camera and microphone, and by week two, I had I had gone to Best Buy and done curbside pickup of a little uh, phone attaching uh, shotgun mic with a, a some fluff uh, wind windscreen on it, so we didn't get as much background noise, and we got a little bit better pickup and. Then we started tripod mounting it, and we were pre-recording and posting on YouTube. And again, we were using PowerPoint slides and dropping those in as graphics on top of the pre-recorded video. And and I was uh, premiering that on YouTube during our Sunday worship hour at 9.30. And, and like you said, there's nobody else here to do that. I'm doing that. Um, I'm designing that worship. Then we uh, switched. We installed live cameras and a computer and some hardware and software, but that was a big expense. And there's a lot of congregations and communities that that can't do it. I I found a way to solve it for about $1,200, but we wanted three cameras. We wanted some other options, and we had the funds available, so we spent about 4000 And I know some churches that have spent ten, twelve, fifteen thousand 15000 to do live. And then the worship leaders were live and live streaming – 
out through YouTube or Facebook and people watch. But in my tradition, it is, I, I like Zoom a little better and we've never chosen it because at least then the people can be active participants in the worship itself as opposed to an audience in a movie theater just watching and observing. And, and I feel like there is something we're missing in choosing to do YouTube or Facebook live stream where people receive it, absorb it, observe it, but, and are invited to participate, but their participation doesn't impact the gathered community. Others do not know whether or not they are actually participating. The closest we get to live participation now is we have chat monitors, um, volunteers in, in worship who will monitor the chat lines of Facebook and YouTube. And I or Caitlin may invite somebody to, hey, let us know if you've got a prayer request and you want to chat that in. And and then they read it and they report it live and then we respond to it live. So there is a little bit of feedback, but not enough for me to make it feel worshipful. Yeah, my, my um, par- parallel to that is just after we officially welcome Shabbat with one of our opening prayers, um, I'll ha- I'll ask people to unmute themselves and say Shabbat Shalom to one another. And it was a thing right away where people wanted to see each other. So I, I toyed with the webinar, a function of Zoom in which it is really an audience It's a- and you don't even see people's faces. The plus side of that from a technical standpoint as the facilitator is there's no chance of interruption because they don't even have the possibility of unmuting themselves or doing something on their camera or anything like that. But the downsides far outweigh that. And so we, we discovered that right away. And then when the service is over, after we sing our closing song, people schmooze for 10 minutes, five minutes, whatever, you know, and sometimes it's hard when we have a bigger service and there's 50 people on, you can't really have a conversation with anyone. You know, one thing that I has been an unexpected um, consequence of this is not realizing in some ways the, the pluses that what we'll call virtual worship affords, which is namely, you know, people who wouldn't be able to come to the synagogue can now come. So whether it's health issues, too far away, don't like driving at night, don't feel like driving, you know, but they're able to tune in and when we had our baby naming, I mean, we experienced this emotionally in that if we did our baby naming the way we would have planned, which would have been in person, I mean, it would have been unbelievable. We would have probably over 100 people in our house, and we still plan on doing that months down the road when it's safe. But still, people wouldn't be able to come. My cousin from Guam was able to tune in, and and this is, and people from all over the world, let alone America. And this has been the case for bar and bat mitzvahs in our community and other things that has been just an unexpected kind of blessing. And the other thing is that, you know, I'm an extrovert, but not everyone is. And and I think I told the joke, the bad joke, about how some people go to pray to kind of socialize with the community, and that's very valid. But some people also go because they want to pray by themselves and not necessarily have that expectation of socialization. And I have a few congregants, more than a few, who've approached me and said, when we go back to the building can we still do services over Zoom for those of us that, you know, for, and, 
you know, I don't think it's because they're lazy, but it's because of the way their spirituality and intentionality works. And it's something I think we're all going to have to think about. I've toyed with trying to find I, I love the YouTube platform, not because it's YouTube. There's some really dangerous things about YouTube. And if you study how uh, how young males especially get radicalized, YouTube is almost always a component of their radicalization. So that platform and its uh, design to pull on you, and deeper and deeper into more radical versions of whatever it is you're you're observing there, it scares me a bit. And I I hesitated to recommend YouTube as a platform for this congregation because of that risk. Um, but it has some really high quality video and audio abilities. And once you put it there, it is there and it Google picks it up and it attaches it to search and it organizes things into beautiful playlists. So there's some real good functionality for this church posting through YouTube. And then we also cast through Facebook as well. But I've, I've wished that I could find a way to Zoom and YouTube at the same time in a way that, that gives me all the functionalities of Zoom and all the longevity and professional presentation of, of YouTube. I, I've attended Zoom worship services and it's so painful sometimes that that one member who has a, a coffee grinder going in the back and doesn't know how to turn off the 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 microphone or for me it's Fox News. Oh my gosh! Not, just to be clear, not for me, for some of my congregants. <laughs> right, just turn it off in the background, right? Or mute yeah. yourself, right? Yes, or she'll be watching, you know, I guess worship, and he'll be over there on the TV. Uh, oh my gosh! Please stop. Uh, and then there's these feedback issues where even the person who's hosting it may not understand that if they don't use headphones and they use outside speakers, that's just rebounding back into their own mic. And and I tried to attend a, a presbytery installation of one of my colleagues here in this gathering of churches. And 10 minutes in, I was exhausted by the technical ineptitude, and it made it so unworshipful. For me, I, I couldn't stand it. Um, and I just muted everything and watched it with no sound. And that was fine. Yeah, it, I, I'm finding it to be more of a challenge to get. I mean, it's always we always prepare for services, right? Like we're thinking about what we're going to say for our sermons. How do I want to introduce this prayer, that prayer, this and I'm not you know, trying to make it seem poor me. I mean, we everyone has kind of had to reinvent how they do their work this year. I mean, almost everyone in any profession. So I'm, I'm not, you know, pulling aside clergy as, as super unique here. Um, but it, it, it's, it's certainly true that I think we have had to do an extra step in order to even get to the place where is where we can think about what prayers are we going to say. I mean, this whole technical piece. Um and some and and just like with everything else, it, people are on a bell curve of skill level and comfortability with that. And thankfully, you know, I think you and I are are toward the side. And I've made my own share of mistakes without question. I've made my share of mistakes on this podcast with regard to that. Um, one thing I I want to talk about is you were just talking about YouTube and kind of the professional presentation. 
Uh, one thing as I look back on this year and, and looking forward to with, with how we do worship is I, I keep thinking back to the high holidays. Um, you know, Jews twice a year during the 10 days in fall, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, it correspond to a 10-day time period. And they're the, they're the most important Jewish holidays on our calendar. That's when everyone comes. You know, rabbis plan their services for months beforehand. I mean, it's not just about the service for that week, but working with the choir and cues, you know, the whole, I, I imagine you do something similar for Christmas and Easter. And I, you know, when you were talking about the budgets, I mean, I have colleagues, and I'm talking about much larger congregations that are also an extreme and not the norm, but tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds, simply put toward production values. And, you know, to a degree, I, I'm never going to have that kind of budget. I, I'm, I don't even think I had a $1,000 budget in terms of that sort of stuff. But I also do think that there's an element of, hu of kind of human connection that's possibly lost when it is I don't want to say too perfect because we should, you know, we want to be as glitch free as possible in all of those things. But I do think that there's a connection that comes through when it's, when there's an element of realness and an element to a vulnerability of, you know, this isn't going to be perfect. We are who we are. The most important thing is that we're, we're here safely in our homes, possibly sitting next to someone we love. If not, looking at people we love on our screens, and that's the most important thing. You know, not is, is the face of the speaker lit perfectly. And we want it to be, absolutely. But um, at the end of the day, uh, I, I think it, is, it, it can be, it's possible to focus too much on that and not enough on the content itself. It's always hard to make that decision when you're realizing we as Americans have been so conditioned to expect a production value that is of a certain quality. And it becomes a, a, a barrier to entry for somebody who is curious, religiously curious, and they're, okay, maybe I'll try out this odd thing. And if their production values are at on the bottom 50 percentile of all production values, right, from Super Bowl to – PBS to home YouTuber, uh, then you find that somebody will, even if the content itself is beautiful, if it's not presented well, beautifully, they'll miss it. They'll give up on it. They'll tune out. And, and that's not a judgment on, on them or the producer of the content itself. It's just a recognition that people are weak and fickle and impatient. And sometimes, if if I need to add a little bit extra lighting, change my camera angle, and have have a different background or backdrop so that things feel a little better, and maybe that gets that person to hang with me for another six, eight minutes until they hear that sentence that they needed to hear, okay, and I'm, I'm willing to work hard to figure out what improves not just the content, but the presentation of the content now. And I did that when it was live worship only. I, I always wanted the live presentation to feel as real and authentic and vulnerable and, and human and connectional as it could. And now I just realized that the skill set to feel authentic and vulnerable and connectional in person can be in conflict with trying to 
to create the sense of authentic and vulnerability and connection virtually. It's almost like I, I almost wish I could have a, an in-person worship that is designed 100% for in-person worship. And then they go home and we start over and do it again virtually. And it is 100% designed for those who aren't here, who have chosen to receive it virtually. And we give much of the same content. We just repackage it in a way that works so much better virtually as opposed to in the space. But, but I, I haven't committed to that. I haven't made a plan for that. And I don't know if that's logistically feasible. And I, one thing that I also think too is it was important for me, even from the very beginning, not to pretend that it's services as usual, but in a different format. In other words, I, I don't think it's a recipe for success to have the service exactly as you would have it, kind of mirrored point by point, except on Zoom, because it is a different format. People aren't sitting next to each other. People probably aren't as dressed up as they normally are. They may have their cell phones out. Hopefully I don't wanna see them, but it's much easier for them to be doing something else, or maybe, you know, cause they're on their computers anyway. And so, you know, having the services shorter has been a very intentional choice on my part. And, you know, making, comments about the reality that we're in as opposed to kind of pretending that it's not there or something like that has also I, I think been effective and and to some ways being a little self-effacing about it you know being able to laugh at ourselves about it and the, tomorrow night is this holiday of Purim for Jews which is it, it's a incredibly fun and silly holiday Jews dress up in costume and um, the book of Esther uh, from the Bible is the uh, the story that we read, and it's all about kind of ribaldry and mistaken identities. And there's actually quite a deep theology behind what seems like a, a silly, almost children's story. But this idea that we can make fun of ourselves a little bit, and it doesn't all have to be you know perfect all the time. Um, and and I, I one thing that I love about my congregation. Um, is that they? I think that they not only allow for that, but they enjoy that. That that that's part of the the warmth of of who we are. Is that kind of, you know, imperfect warmth? I'll call it. I've served three different congregations and worshipped in many others as either a member or just a guest, and and I've I've felt the range, the spectrum of the the congregational cultures where. We just roll with it. It's flexible. It's whatever. It's a little more contemporaneous as opposed to scripted or it's a little um, more uh, unpredictable and spontaneous, right, as uh, as opposed to everything in its place at exactly the right time. And you can almost tell just by how somebody steps up onto the chancel, like if they tiptoe on the chancel and they don't want to click their shoes too hard on the wood and Right. You're thinking, uh oh, I, we've got a, we've got a stiff one here versus right. If somebody just sashays across and goes, Hey, everybody. Uh, right. Then you're like, okay, we've got a casual one here. And it, it's always interesting to me that you don't, if you're watching it virtually, you don't necessarily get that same sense. I, and there are virtual ways to give off signals that 
we're pretty strict here. We go by the book versus we're flexible here. We're, we're winging it, but we have a plan, but we're playful about it. Um, and my preference is whether it's in person or virtual is to make sure it's grace filled. Like, of course, we're going to make a mistake. Yeah. And we're just going to chuckle and keep going. I really um, like how you express that. Yeah. But, it, but, but virtually it's really hard. You can make a content mistake and laugh. If you make a production mistake, like lose audio for three, you know, 30 seconds, people aren't going to chuckle at that. They're going to get pretty frustrated. Uh, if, if things, if the audio and the video get off from one another just by a few seconds and the mouth is moving and then, then the words follow, people are going to lose it. They, they're going to disconnect from the automatic worship worshipful invitation and they're going to get distracted by the technological wiggles uh and and so i i find myself in virtual worship world uh willing to offer lots of grace for in-person issues oh the you know the candle lighter didn't click oh it's out of butane ha 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 or whatever um versus um technological issues in virtual space i i don't want us to make mistakes there i want that to work and so that the technology is an invisible supporting net to the worship experience. Um, and if you start to see the technology and struggle with it, you realize, uh-oh, this, this is not worshipful and it's not worship's fault. It's the technology's fault, the virtual. Right. Fault. And uh, ideally, absolutely. I mean, I had a challenge at a, a bar mitzvah a few weeks ago where I, I felt awful about it, where I, I had that exact feedback issue you were talking about. And the challenge was that the family, w- so w- we, we do allow uh, small numbers of people in the sanctuary. And for something like a, a bar bat mitzvah, which is so special, um, there is a power to having at least the immediate family and maybe a few close family and friends there. And so we did that. And of course, the service is also over Zoom. And the way the service is run, and I won't bore people with the specifics, but there are elements of participation where people who are on Zoom participate in the service, which means that the people in the sanctuary need to be able to hear them. And that's a whole thing, right? And... I have a computer in front of me from my pulpit with a microphone. The child, same thing. And to figure out a way for us to not have feedback over one another and allow the speaker is really difficult. And I felt awful that that we figured it out eventually. And we tested it before. We tested it before and it worked. But then as soon as... You know, things happen and it's different than how you tested it because you didn't think of something that's so minor. But of course, the thing that's so minor changes the whole thing. And um, yeah, so I've been I've been guilty of that frustration on both sides of both having the frustration and causing the frustration. And while we're picking on virtual with all this, I, I guess we can confess that the same kind of issues that are really apparent when you're doing virtual worship can be equally distracting in in-person worship. It's just a different technology that can get in the way. Those who dare to use screens, right? The screen can glitch out or go fuzzy or the bulb can blow. Those who use microphones, the microphone can pop or get feedback or a battery pack can die or uh, we had we had a frequency of battery packs at one of my churches 
that was so old, the FCC had resold that range of frequencies. Um, and we weren't supposed to use those mic packs anymore, but we didn't have enough money to buy new ones. So we just kept using them until one day we started to pick up 911 style stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and we're like, okay, we, we can't use these anymore. You were hearing we're getting... other people's prayers. <laughs> yes. It's so sad. Uh, it, virtual worship for me is I'm really happy that we can extend the worship moment to others who can't be with us. And I'm really frustrated by its inability to be truly human. I mean, we... For Christians, we talk about the God who came in the flesh, the the Jesus of Nazareth. And then for me to worship Jesus of Nazareth virtually, not in the flesh, it feels a bit hypocritical. And I'm I don't want to be too judgmental of that. We're just trying to get through the pandemic. And I have a I we will continue to offer virtual worship long after forever now. Right. Um, once we're back in person. For those who can't be here or on vacation, but I, I'm not happy that the virtual worship is so non-fleshed. So I have a few thoughts on that. First of all, I, I, I want you to be happy, but, <laughs> but also I, I think of um, the, uh, the scene in Exodus where, where Moses says to God, let me see your face. And God says, no one can see my face and live, which is worth its own conversation, That the theology behind that, of course. But what ends up happening is Moses, God lets Moses see God's shadow passing before him. And again, anthropomorphized language, of course, but this is the language of the Torah. And, and, the, and Moses, not only does Moses only see God's shadow, but it's through kind of a crack of a rock. So it, it's, it's like a, a speck of a speck of the clarity. But even that is more powerful than nothing. And so I, I think about that all the time, that we always have limited vision. We always have limited resources and our actions not meeting our ideals. And so I don't know if that helps you get over your, your sadness at Zoom, but that, that is something I, I think about. Another thing I think about is if this pandemic happened 30 years ago, I mean, what, what would... They, I mean, people would call people. I mean, they, so, you know, just the blessing that we have something as imperfect as it is. A big conference call and everybody would dial into it, right? Oh, and my then, gosh. Can you imagine? Oh, and then all the feedback issues. You know, that story with Moses and God, I thought God said, okay, you can't see my face, you'll die, so I'm going to show you my ass. And right. uh, <laughs> walk by, let you see my backside. Right. Uh, <laughs> which, which helps me when I make an ass of myself leading virtual <laughs> worship. <laughs> I also, um, I was thinking of this story, which I am going to butcher. And I, five years ago, when I heard a rabbi talk about this, I, I've been, it, this book has been on my wish list. But apparently, um, Leonard Bernstein in his autobiography. And again, another caveat, I'm going to butcher this story because I heard it years ago. But he talks about how the goal for him when he plays a piece is to know it so well that by the time he performs it, it's an improv. Even though he might play it exacting and it sounds the same as the last time, it's as if he's playing it for the first time. And I think about that as my goal for prayer. Ver, you know, in person over Zoom doesn't matter. That and when so when we're talking about kind of the the performative 
uh, functionality and the production values and how that blends into the content and meaningfulness and spirituality. I, I, for me, that ties it together a little bit. Is you know, It's kind of like the actor that practices their lines so, so much and then doesn't look at the script again. And I'm not saying I practice that much. There are times when I do. Um, but the reality is I don't have that much time always. But the ideal of it be that it, it's not performative, that it that it's coming from me, even if it's coming from page 282, which I've done 4,000 times and will do 40,000 more times, this idea that that it is meaningful, like like performing something as an improv where you, you know, you're really feeling it, you're getting into the groove of that solo, but it's every time you do it. Yeah, I, I like that. And, and there are moments in now leading worship, I make eye contact with the camera. I look right at it and look through it. And and that felt so awkward. Back when I was pre-recording worship to yep. to be done, I would look at the camera, I would look to the left of it, I would look to the right of it to kind of emulate what it would feel like if there were people watching and people in the space. So that now when I look to the left pews or to the right pews and then at camera, it has a similar feel to the way it felt before there were people back in the pews. And that that practice was so unnatural for me at first. Now it's very normal. I've done it enough that I improv it. I don't plan when I'm going to look somewhere or somewhere or put it to the camera. I It just happens. And it's a part of my routine now because there are people on the other side of that camera lens that I know that are participating. And I, I used to have to try to envision their faces. Okay, when you look at the camera, think about Charlie and Marty and whatever. Uh, but now I, I just look at the camera and I go, oh, yeah, there's 50, 60, 70 people through there. And then there's 10 over here and 15 over there and 35 over there. And, and you, you scan their faces as you speak to them, not to a camera. And that habit of of practicing the technology so much, the the essentials, lets it become more personal and sure. relational, despite the technology. Uh, but there there are moments where I'm trying to lead worship technologically, and it, I know it's getting in my way. The technology is is tripping me up. If it wasn't for the technology, I could stumble through this, and people would see in my body language, okay, he's struggling, but he's with us and he's coming and I feel it. Um, and I, I worry that on, on screen anyway, they're like, oh, he's a, he's a bad actor. He's a bad performer. Uh, and, and I wish that, uh, screens and virtual worship style had the, um, the fleshiness, the relational, grace that happens when you sit eyeball to eyeball. It, it, it's a lot like Facebook comments. You, you can read somebody's Facebook comment and hate them, right? But if they were to say that with a certain inflection, with a tear in the corner of their eye, as you sat across the table from them, you know, eating a steak and shake burger and a big milkshake, it'd be a very different experience. The same exact words because the flesh makes it more real and lovable and forgivable. Most importantly, what flavor milkshake is in this scenario? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that's totally right. And one thing I try and do is um, 
you know, make services a little more social by, you know, if someone has something interesting in their background, like a painting or a beautiful view of a garden, you know, we'll mention it. And then everyone on Zoom is looking, oh, oh yeah, who's Rabbi talking about? Oh, there they are. And, you know, I'll have people wave to each other and things like that. But I, I, I think, I think you're right that there are, there are hurdles to that and, and we should acknowledge them. The, the one thing emotionally anyway, for me, that is that is difficult when I lead services. It's not necessarily not seeing people because I, I, I do occasionally, you know, I'll put on gallery view and I'll, I'll look at faces and things like that. Um, for me, it's the audio. It's not hearing the prayers or the chants. And we talked about that uh, in, a, in our episode on prayer, that communal prayer. You know, I think you called it corporate prayer, which I, I like that expression. Um is so important in the the highs and lows and the ebbs and flows of a, of a service. And because of the way Zoom works, I mean, I do ask people to read responsibly, but behind their muted screens. And when we first started, there were some prayers where I said, okay, everyone unmute yourselves and sing the Shema, the prayer in which we declare God one. And, and after two services, every, I, I got dozens of emails. Rabbi, even that short prayer, can we please not do that? Just one voice, as I'm seeing you're agreeing with by your uh, virulent nodding. And so, un, except on services where we have the choir or our cantorial soloist, thank goodness, um, where, that we have those other resources, um, I'm the only voice. And, and that for me is the, is the hardest part, is not hearing the other voices in prayer. Do you think when you go back to um, everybody's in-person, in-worship, without masks, um, but you're still providing an online option by Zoom or something, will you have a screen in the temple space, the synagogue space, showing the faces of those who are worshiping from home. I, I would love to. I mean, we are not, we're very DIY right now. So the, the, the way our, our Zoom works is my laptop, which I'm on right now, sits in front of me on the pulpit. And then when there's a bar bat mitzvah, I use my iPad as the second one. Um, so we don't have kind of an in-house camera or in-house feed that I mean, it, it may be something that we look into, especially because it, I, I imagine that we will offer some sort of virtual opportunity going forward. Well, this has been an interesting conversation. I hope those of you who are out there uh, not attending worship or attending worship in person or attending worship virtually uh, remember each other and the connections across each other and you find some way to uh, push the technology or use it to your advantage so that you have a worshipful, uh, worshipful connection with each other despite this pandemic and even after it uh, as you keep on going through your lives. Yeah, and I, I, I'd also urge people, regardless of whatever persuasion you are, you know, denominationally or religiously, uh, to there's because of the ease, technologically speaking, you know, we don't have the distance anymore to limit us you know what whatever your 
religion is. I mean, look up what places have uh, an option for you to zoom into or, you know, some places it's a phone line, but many places there's there's live stream and um, or do one for a religion that's not your own to learn something about a different religion like we're trying to do here on this podcast. Uh, and then you know, write in with your experiences. We'd love to hear them. And if you have technical abilities uh, and are Jewish and live near Athens or are Christian and live on the Eastern Shore, <laughs> give us a tap and sign up. We would love to pass on some of the uh, the technical things that we do each week to an amazing volunteer who is gifted and loving and worshipful in themselves. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us on the Real Religion Podcast today, where a rabbi and a reverend walk into a podcast and talk real about religion. I'm Reverend Joel Talbert, and on behalf of Rabbi Eric Linder and all the Real Religion fans out there, we thank you for being with us today and invite you to send us any feedback or suggestions or topic ideas to realreligionpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep it real.